Welcome to this MTech Access podcast. At MTech Access, we offer a complete global market access service from strategy through to implementation. In the UK, all our work is underpinned by authentic NHS insights. Our in-house experts work closely with the national network of associates who occupy strategic, operational and clinical roles within the NHS. Leaders in their field, their knowledge and experience helps MTech Access to be as close to the front line of care delivery as possible. Please subscribe to the podcast or follow our LinkedIn company page for more information. Welcome to this special edition of the MTech Access Words of Wisdom webinar. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Simon Parsons, the Divisional Director of Surgery at Nottingham University Hospitals NHS Trust. Simon is joining me today to discuss what it's like to be responsible for surgical services throughout this COVID pandemic. Against the backdrop of the Trust's recent decision to suspend some non-urgent elective surgery, Simon will explain the challenges his Trust and others face in maintaining activity and how they might adapt to provide appropriate care for their patients in the future. Simon, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. Could you briefly introduce yourself and your role, please? Yeah, sure. Thanks a lot, Tom. Yeah, I'm Regional Director for Surgery. We have 2,000 staff in surgery. It's one of five divisions in Nottingham University Hospital's NHS Trust, which is one of the biggest trusts in uh, the NHS. Yes, I've been, most of my life has been dominated by the hospital's response to COVID over the last few months. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you. So your trust is obviously under huge pressure at the moment. Can you just summarise how things feel for you and your colleagues? Yeah, well, we are all pretty tired and we have spent the last six months initially responding to COVID first time round and you know there are a lot of lessons that we've learned along the way and then it was a case of as as the first COVID peak dropped you know let's get back to normal let's catch up with all the things that we've stopped doing and so we were really going flat out on that and we were just getting up to normal levels and just beginning to dent in, in the backlog and then suddenly the second wave hit a little bit sooner than we were expecting and a lot harder than we were expecting. So the staff are pretty tired and having to go again. There's, you know, the the morale is not not brilliant right now, but we're, you know, we're, we're all pulling together and we'll see this thing through. Yeah, fantastic. Let's hope so. How does this differ from the first time around? Okay, so that it's really interesting because first time around we obviously were completely in unknown territory and you know we saw the horror stories coming out of Italy and China and we pretty much shut down all the non-essential elective work so endoscopy shut down apart from emergencies all the elective surgery shut down outpatients shut down and we stopped doing everything that was not essential In addition to that, of course, we had the lockdown and for certain emergencies also stopped like major trauma. People weren't driving their cars fast. They weren't outside. They were safely tucked up in their houses. And so we had very little major trauma, which meant that we could allocate those staff to the COVID effort. But also, strangely, a lot of other emergency workload reduced. People stayed away from 
from hospital as much as they possibly could. Whereas now, in the second wave, people are going about their business pretty normally, although we've got different levels of, of uh, lockdown and Nottingham is currently in tier two, although we, we expect we may end up going into tier three. Nevertheless, there's still lots of people out and about doing their normal things, working normally. And so the normal emergencies are continuing to happen. People aren't staying away from hospital because they, you know, there's been a lot of media over the last few months saying, you know, if you have a problem, you, you should go. And that is correct. But so our workload, our emergency workload is, is still 100%. We're keeping going the outpatient clinics and we're keeping going as much normal work as we possibly can, whilst also trying to deal with a huge influx of COVID patients. So that's quite a difficult combination. You know, when, when we were shutting down elective work initially, then we had extra resources to cope with COVID. The other difference is that in the first wave, we used the independent sector a lot, and that's not, we don't yet have an agreement with the independent sector to help us with the elective surgery workload. So lots of differences which actually make it a lot more difficult this time round than first time round. Are there any positives this time, that things that might be, you might be better prepared for or might be easier this time round? Yeah, well, of course, we do know a lot more about COVID than we did six months ago. And, you know, the NHS has been one of the leaders in COVID research and Nottingham played a full part of in that. And one of the things we're seeing is at the moment, and we hope it continues, that although we're seeing similar numbers of patients needing to come into hospital, quite as high patient, number of patients going to intensive care. So that's encouraging and, you know, we hope that we will be able to get a lot more patients through the mission and hopefully, although our intensive care is filling up, hopefully it won't be quite as much of a, a pressure point as it was in the first wave. Yeah, okay, wonderful, thank you. You've, you've obviously mentioned about the, the scaling back of, of surgery services. And one of the first trusts in the country to take the decision to reduce non-urgent -elect, non elective surgery. Can you just talk us through the, the decision-making process behind, behind that step? Yes, okay, so there, there are two major components to this. First, the first thing to say, the risk to the patient. And the second thing is resources. So let me just expand on the risk to the patient because we know that from initial data that came out about COVID is that the patients with the highest risk of death are patients who catch COVID whilst having an operation. So there's really quite an alarming uh, rate that was published in The Lancet. There was a big paper in The Lancet suggesting that about 20% of patients having elective surgery actually died if they also if they had COVID. Wow. Now we, we were very alarmed by that first time round and we were very cautious in reintroducing surgery but actually we we have avoided anything like that. In fact we've had very little COVID related harm in our surgical patients because we've set things up to 
keep them free of COVID and so forth. But that is nevertheless a concern that we still have, that if our patients in the post-operative period catch COVID, then there is a significant risk to them. So for that reason, non-urgent non surgery and non-cancer surgery probably should at this peak be deferred to a later and a safer time. However, of course, one of the risks with any pandemic is that more harm comes to patients without the, the pandemic, without the COVID, than to, with the COVID. So we absolutely do need to operate on patients with cancer and clinically urgent and emergency conditions. And, you know, part of my job is making sure we can do that in a, in a safe environment with a very, very low risk of them catching COVID. Yeah, OK, wonderful. So, in terms of... Sorry, oh, so, 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 that, so that's, the, that's the, the risk to the patient side of it, but also there's the whole resources side of it. And, and, and the, the main decision that we met, had to make last week, which was well publicised, was the fact that, you know, at now our hospitals are being overwhelmed with COVID patients and we can't do everything. There, there, is, there are limited resources. And so as happens every winter, to be honest, when we have a really bad winter and lots of patients coming in with uh, winter viruses and so forth, then we have to sometimes reduce the number of elective surgery that we do. And that's what we're seeing now, but this time it's COVID and of course it's only October and we're not into winter yet. Yeah, okay. And obviously, you know, like you say, we're just starting winter uh, or uh, winter is around the corner. I don't think anyone's really expecting that things are going to improve within the next few months. But how will you monitor sort of your level of provision over the next few months in terms of when you might start to either increase that non-urgent work or possibly even, you know, have to scale things back further? Well, to say that we've been monitoring things day by day is an understatement because we've been monitoring things hour by hour and, and sometimes we've made a decision in an afternoon and the, the next morning that decision is no longer true because things have changed overnight and so we're you know we're monitoring the situation hour by hour and, and taking decisions accordingly and one of the lessons from the first time round is that we will very much up and down flex our capacity much quicker than we did first time round the, the modeling data it really has been pretty accurate and so we've got a pretty good idea of when the peak is likely to be of course we can't say exactly how bad it's going to be and that depends on you know government measures in terms of tier two and tier three lockdowns and so forth but you know you know we we having to be very responsive to the changes that we're seeing yeah okay so, so you've mentioned the, the patient risk and the resources as the, the two key drivers in your decision making. We, we've spoken um, with previous guests about the block contracting model and the, the change in, in the NHS finances and obviously uh, that, that all changed from, from the beginning of October. Does the financial position in terms of the amount of activity you're going to be able to, to achieve over the next few months, does the financial position have a bearing on, on your decisions around service provision to be absolutely honest no that's not it's not a limiting factor 
you know, the government made it very clear that whatever was necessary, they would support. And they have done that, you know, since COVID. You know, we can all look back and, you know, I've been doing this role for three years, um, stepping down now and handing over to somebody else. But over the last three years, we've been asking for money to do ward to build new wards with side rooms and and had we got that money that would have made a huge difference in how we could cope with a pandemic now we didn't get that money and so we've had to make do and in nottingham our state is very old and it doesn't have many separate rooms but right here right now the money's not a limiting factor the limiting factor is our estate and is our workforce, you know, the, the nursing workforce in particular are really stretched. And, you know, if we wanted to open uh, half a dozen extra wards, well, we don't have the nurses to, to man those. So we don't even ha have the nurses to open a single extra ward. So that's why we have to take down certain elective activity in order to allow the emergency stuff to continue. Yeah, okay, thank you. So inevitably, waiting lists are, are likely to grow as activity has been reduced. What are your concerns about the people that you're not seeing at the moment? Well, I'm very concerned about the people that, that we're not seeing. I mean, all the work that goes on in a trust, all the patients that we see are patients that need healthcare. It's not optional most of the time. Now, elective surgery is can wait by definition it's not something that is emergency or urgent that needs to be done in the next month but it it should be done in a timely way and we are seeing patients who need surgery or need treatment of some sort who aren't able who we, who we aren't able to offer that right now and so waiting lists are going to increase and there will be some patients who will come to harm. We're, we're very clear with our patients that if they're concerned about coming to harm, that they need to get back in touch and we will do our utmost to expedite. But nevertheless, we can't do everyone right now. And so there will be the risk of patients coming to harm whilst waiting on, on a waiting list. Within the trust, what might you do differently to uh, try and mitigate some of those concerns about those patients. Okay, so I mean, there's always things that we're trying to do in order to do more for our patients. One of the things is, when we don't have COVID patients, when the COVID rate drops and the, and COVID patients are able to return home and empty out those wards, then we will very rapidly start up the elective programme again and then we'll be looking for more and that's what we've been doing over the summer is you know, how can we get back to normal how can we be even better than normal and you know working weekends and evenings and so forth and the other thing that we have done over the first wave is work very closely with our independent sector colleagues and that's been um, great because there's not much private work going on and so using that capacity for our NHS patients has been really useful and we're trying to do that again and and but obviously the first time around there was a national contract between the private providers and the NHS government-led that 
isn't in place at the moment and that's causing a, a little bit of anxiety but we have good relationships with our local independent sector and we're hoping that we can uh, continue to use that resource because without it then you know patients are going to wait significantly longer so there are lots of things that we can do but ultimately we have a limited resource and it has to respond to the emergency patients first and right now it's COVID, continue to do as much elective work as we can, but there is that only that limited resource. Yeah, okay, so I, I'm, I'm gonna guess the answer to this question, but are there, are there any opportunities or would you be looking sort of within surgical pathways to make changes that might have a positive impact on efficiency for want of a better word to, yeah, so, so I mean, that's one of the things that uh, I've been particularly interested in over the, my three years as divisional director. How can we make elective surgery more efficient and best practice? And of course, if we had a, the perfect real estate, if we had the perfect hospital, it would be a lot easier. We don't, we have quite an old estate and so there is there is the limit and, and that, and that elective work is not protected from the emergency work that we have to do, which I've just been talking about. And that is one of the restrictions and prevents the efficiency that I would like to see. But it's very much something that we're interested in making sure patients are at their peak fitness before their surgery, the prehabilitation, as we call it. Then they come in, have enhanced recovery protocols during their recovery from surgery, as well as minimally invasive and robotic type procedures, which we're keen on. And then post-op, you know, post-op, there's the, the post-rehabilitation, trying to get patients fit again as quickly as possible and reducing readmissions. So those are all things that I've got a real passion about that we're really interested in to try and uh, make sure those patients are treated in the most efficient way for them, but also in the most efficient way for the hospital and for taxpayers' money. Mm. Yeah, okay. You, you talked there about prehabilitation. Are you doing anything with the wider system? Obviously, we're on a road to integration in, in the NHS. Are you doing anything with the wider system to help reduce the need for surgery in the first place? So yeah, absolutely. You know, we have one of our the largest specialties that I deal with is orthopedic surgery patients with hip and knee conditions, often arthritis, often requiring hip and knee replacement. But we know that if they see physios along the journey, then that can give them a good quality of life for a period of time before they absolutely need their their joint replaced. So we, we have uh, community hubs um, where patients are referred up for that for their knee pain and then they're seen by physios and they have a prehabilitation program to try and get them avoiding surgery ideally mm -hmm. but if they can't avoid surgery then at least get them as fit as they can be for their operation. So that's really important and we're working across the integrated care service in the whole of Nottinghamshire to make sure we do as much of that as possible, delivering care close to the patient's home where that's possible. And 
in, in, in terms of the, the surgery element of that, is that is something that the trust's leading or is it really a system effort to, to address the needs of the population? Well, it's very much a, a system-led thing, but trust is very much at the heart. Our chief exec actually is in is also the chief exec of, of this of the system, integrated care system. So, you know, we're very much in the heart of that. But yeah, we we recognise that if a patient can be treated in their local GP practice, why would they want to come up to hospital for the same yeah. treatment? You know, it's much more convenient for them and it's probably cheaper as well. So yeah, absolutely. But we've got to make sure that's safe and of a good quality. Yeah, okay. Um, well, sort of, I suppose most most prevalent, most prolific means of addressing the, the NHS's needs over the COVID pandemic has been the introduction of virtual consultations, or at least the acceleration of the implementation of them. In terms of that move, how, how do they impact on your own clinical practice and, and do they affect the way that patients actually engage within a consultation? Yeah, I mean, that's been a really interesting and a very positive thing from COVID. And, you know, for every uh, disaster like a pandemic, there are always lessons that we learn and good, good points that we can take away. And this, I think, is one of them, the virtual consultation. It's something I've been trying to promote for a number of years, but the, the traction has been quite slow. But suddenly, uh, within a few weeks, <laughs> everyone was doing it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was slightly uncontrolled, but, you know, it, and you could argue that the pendulum swung, swung a little bit too far. And I'll, I'll explain what I mean by that. But, you know, I mean, most of the patients that we see in the clinic are now telephone-based clinics. So or video consultation. So we're, we're rolling out video consultation among in the trust. But you know that again, that takes a little bit of time. But there's a lot you can achieve with the patient over the phone or over the internet video consultation. But of course, you can't examine the patient. So there is a limit. And sometimes you can't, there's a lot of non-verbals that you can't get as well if you're just doing it by phone which is the way i've been doing it simply because our clinic hasn't been prioritized for the video consult yet but yes so so there's a lot we can achieve with the virtual clinic but one of one of the things that we do with virtual clinics is you know we're making we're not we're normally being presented with a patient who has a provisional diagnosis and we still have to arrange for them to have imaging and so forth, which they're going to have to come up to the trust for. Some once once we've got that imaging result back, we can come up with a diagnosis and a management plan. But then, of course, you have the whole informed consent, shared decision making process, which is really important. And that's we used to doing that face to face with the patient, but we're having to think about doing that remotely now as well. So, so how feasible is that shared decision making? Is it, is it a significant shift in how able you are to do that? Well, it's a barrier. So, so you know, the fact that we can't eyeball a patient directly and have the nonverbal communications is, is a slight barrier to shared decision making. But obviously, we, if, so long as they can understand English and, and speak to us, 
then we can share that information. And one of the things that we we do is give patient information to the patient and we can email that to them and we can use digital technology now to deliver that information. And so, so long as they can receive that information, then that two-way communication, that interaction between the doctor and the patient can still happen. It's something I feel very passionate about. And, and in fact, I've have a, I work with a company called Ido Healthcare that I've been involved with right from the beginning 20 years ago. And that's all about sharing information with a patient in a way that the patient can understand. Traditionally, it was a paper form, but now we've developed the technology to be able to deliver that uh, digitally. And so that really helps and helps get over those barriers of the breakdown in or the restriction with the virtual consultation. And it remains absolutely key. You know, we, we, we have to have the patient being fully on board with the treatment that we're recommending. Otherwise, you know, that's we're not doing the best for our patients. Yeah, yeah, that, that that's that's really important. And we, we've heard, certainly I've heard from colleagues in primary care that that actually patients being in their own environment at home can actually sometimes be really positive because they're feeling you know, safe in their own cocoon almost. Do, do you find that in, in terms of patients sort of digesting information and being able to come to the right decision is a, a home environment preferable for them than a clinical environment or, or have you not really noticed that? Well, I think it is. I think, you know, the fact that the patient, if they can absorb and read information in their own time, not just in the pressure few minutes that they're with the doctor, that's really important for the patient to actually understand and come to a decision. And yes, that has to be facilitated with the with a conversation with the clinician because, you know, the patient's need that they need someone to be able to ask questions of things that they don't understand so that's absolutely essential but yes it you know it does the fact that they're in their own home and there isn't the time pressure in quite the same way that that's that's good it doesn't help of course on on the odd occasion where i phoned a patient up and they didn't realize i was going to be phoning up and they were asleep in bed that that's not the idea. <laughs> there's there's being relaxed and there's being over relaxed. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, just thinking, just pulling you back to you mentioned in terms of the virtual consultations, it's something that you've been trying to implement for for some time in the trust. It's happened overnight, literally in some cases uh, within the NHS that these technologies have, have come in. Do you get a sense of frustration that that it you've spent a lot of time and then it was just one one pandemic switched things on overnight, or or do you see that just as a as a positive? I see it as not as a great opportunity, and and we 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 absolutely need to build on that. I think it was a frustration before when there was a you know it was quite a slow uptake initially. I'm a believer in a single meaningful consultation. That is, you know, once the patient needs to come and see me as the surgeon once all the results are in and we know exactly what the problem is. I don't need to see the patient face to face to say I need to send you for a test. So that's what we're working towards. We're working towards being able to get all the results together, inform the patient of what the problem is 
these are the suggested and now come and see the surgeon and have that single meaningful consultation where they can look me in the eyes, I can look them in the eyes, I can examine them, I can see what issues, problems we might anticipate at surgery and we can have a, a discussion about the risks and benefits of surgery and then we can make a, a joint decision together. So I think you know that's that's what I've been trying to promote over the years. And I think the experience with the pandemic has really brought that forward and accelerated that. Yeah, okay, thank you very much. Obviously, we're talking about the virtual world or the digital world that, that we're, we're living in, increasingly living in. Do you see further opportunities and do you have an appetite for looking at new technologies to help improve the standard of care throughout the trust, throughout your system? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I mean, we know that industry have a really important part to play. And, and in my role as director of IDO Healthcare, I'm involved in that to, to some degree. And, you know, any, any good idea, any good solution is something that not only will work in Nottingham, but will work across the NHS and indeed across the world. And that, that's the business model that, you know, IDO have come up with. And, th and that's true of all the other providers out there and industry partners out there you know they've got a, they've got a solution to a problem now not every solution will work in every every situation but you know if it's if it's a good one then it will and and of course getting that digital technology to work in our hospitals for the benefit of our patients is something i feel passionate about and and actually Nottingham also sees that as a, a key a key way forward so that we can help each other, industry and the NHS, to develop uh, patient pathways which are efficient. We all recognise, you know, the technology we have in our pockets, the, the phones that we have, you know, communicating with our patient, we can give them all that information whilst they're sat at home relaxing. And you know that reduces the burden on patients having to come up to hospital. It also saves money for the trust in terms of keeping the patients out of hospital when they don't need to be there. So there's huge, huge things that we can do. And I, and I think we're probably at the beginning of the curve in of improvement in the in the NHS. You know, where technology in some ways is very advanced in terms of our imaging and that sort of thing but in terms of our computer systems that we in there's a lot lot to learn from other industries if you think about financial technology you know i'm sure that if you you know we've all used banking apps and the technology just works brilliantly doesn't it why why can't it work like that in the nhs and and that's what sort of again another passion of mine that i feel that we can really revolutionize health technology in the next few years. And and would there be particular points in pathways that you're particularly looking at? Is it detection, diagnosis, treatment itself, or is it looking, you know, very open-mindedly at if the right things are out there, let's let's try and embrace them? I think I think all all parts of the patient pathway. I mean I think the imaging technology that we have is actually very good. 
I think that, you know, we've talked about virtual consultations and there are a lot of partners coming into that space now, but it's a rapidly developing field, but we haven't got a, a single product that really does everything and, and it can be improved. So that's a really important development area, which everyone appreciates at the moment. But, the, you know, the, there's electronic referrals and, and how we can triage those referrals so that the patient goes to the correct place without having to see me as the surgeon. I only need to see the patients who've had the tests done and have come back with a condition or a problem which I can help with. So, you know, that referral based uh, system is you know, the digital enhancement there is really important because, you know, we see there are a lot of referrals which are unnecessary and that's not putting any blame on anybody. It's just just the GP's not sure whether this is a, a referral for hospital or not. Whereas if we had an electronic triage system, we could sift out and make sure the necessary information is accompanied by the, the companies, the referrals. And then, of course, there's, you know, reducing length of stay. That's really important. So can we manage patients at home, send them home a little bit earlier than we would do, but monitor their vital signs at home, you know, hospital at home type technology. Again, all that is developing and we need just to bring all those things together in a coordinated way so that we can offer the most efficient service for our patients. But again, if it's good for our patients, it's also cost effective and good for the trust. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and would you hope to see more self-care amongst patients as a result of, of technologies? Absolutely. I mean, you know, promoting self-care is, is really key. Patients do have to take responsibility for their health. And, you know, it's not about just going and being sorted out by the doctor. You know, it's, it, it, you know, people understand much better these days about uh, risk factors and balancing those risk, risk factors. And yeah, chronic conditions are a really good example of how the patient with some testing from, from the, the NHS, we can inform the patient of how they're doing on, on their chronic condition and what their markers are and are they, are they beating this disease or do they need to come in and have some a further consultation for advice. And actually many patients, we can, don't need to come and see the doctor once they empowered to understand and to be able to monitor their chronic condition without the doctor being involved, but knowing that they've always got that call back into the into the system if they need it. Yeah, OK, fantastic. So as we're coming into winter, as a as a lighthearted end note, if, if you could tell us to Santa, what one thing would you ask for if, if he was a health tech company? What one thing would make your life easier if, if you had a technology there? <laughs> well, a new, a, I was going to say a new hospital. <laughs> I suppose that covers a number of technologies. Well, right now, I, I guess the, the, the problem is, is not primarily a technology solution. The, 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 what we need now is, is more nurses and, and, you know, to improve or encourage and support the morale of our nurses. So, you know, that's very much a human thing, obviously, and, and, and maybe that's not the answer you want, but that's the biggest thing that we could do with right now. You know, and, and I have to say the sort of 
the clap for heroes the, you know that we had in the first wave was immensely powerful at encouraging the nhs staff who were working at, above and beyond you know and maybe that sort of thing doesn't happen now and we of course we wouldn't expect it but you know the nhs staff have continued throughout the whole period to do more and go above and beyond and it's difficult as a manager to keep asking for more and asking for more you know we've got a brilliant our, our greatest asset is our healthcare staff and we just need to look after them and support them a little bit because it's going to be a tough winter for everyone so if you've got some digital t technology that can do all that that would be great <laughs> <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll have a look in the garage <laughs> And what, what we've got a couple of minutes left. So what, what do you think your staff would ask for? Is it just understanding from the public that this really is a, a big issue? Is that the main thing that, that staff would ask for? Yeah, I think uh, I think staff would ask people to, you know, comply with the lockdowns and uh, restrictions that we have because it, they're none of the, they're not perfect, but they're, they're there to reduce the spread. You know, we have to reduce the spread of this disease. We have to, we would, you know, they would ask that people look after themselves and, and you know, pay attention to those risk factors like the obesity and, and so forth that, you know, we can do something about. So that would be the, the, the biggest ask. And, you know, our patients don't, don't, you know, they, they're always delighted with the care that they get. They, you know, they're not, they don't, they're not the most demanding patients. They, they're just so appreciative of the care that they get in hospitals. So, you know, I wouldn't say anything to our patients. They need to be there and, and you know, we, we will look after them and make sure that they get the best treatment. But obviously for the community outside, you know, look after each other, do the necessary um, precautions so that we're not having to spread this infection further than is absolutely necessary. Wonderful. Thanks very much, Simon. Those are, I think, good good words to end on there, uh, sound advice. So thanks, Simon, for, for joining me today. Uh, and thank you, everyone at home for listening. We will be back on November the 13th with Dr. Peter Brambleby, who's a interim director of, public of, director of public health, to have a look at the public health situation around COVID and, and how public health is working with the NHS to overcome this pandemic. So thanks again. Look after yourselves and we'll uh, see you next time. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Please do subscribe for future episodes. If you'd like to find out more about our work with the NHS or how we can support your market access strategy, please email info at mtechaccess.co.uk.